All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. August 1940. The skies above southern England are filled with aircraft and the sounds of battle. British pilots struggle to hold back an aerial onslaught. Royal Air Force Fighter Command has barely 700 aircraft to resist over 2,500 warplanes the Luftwaffe can send against it. The aerial battles are savage, desperate, critical for the survival of Britain. Once more, pilots disperse to their aircraft. Once more, mighty engines roar as they power up their machines to take to the sky. But this time, it is not to fight, but to remember those who did. To remember those who faced death in war-torn skies. To remember those who outfought a determined enemy and won a decisive victory. This is the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. Safely down to Biggin Hill. We look to be arriving there by 10 o'clock, and at 10.30, we've got uh, a briefing for the actual show. The Battle of Britain Memorial Flight prepares for an important operation. Many months of intensive preparation and hard work have led up to this day. What I'm going to do is take you chronologically through the day. Over 65 years ago, scenes like this were being repeated daily on airfields throughout Britain. And as a consequence, we will be flying at squadron strength. Now, I'll be leading red section with... Then it was a prelude to flying operations that would strain every nerve. We'll be flying at 15,000 feet. For fighter pilots, it was a prelude to fierce combat, hurling their aeroplanes in twisting patterns through the sky. And Mensal, you'll be yellow section. As I was opening fire, he opened the throttle and started a zoom climb and I pulled the nose up to follow him. And at that very moment, all hell broke loose as the other four opened fire on me and went whizzing past one after the other. 
For the men of Bomber Command, it was the prelude to holding a steady course over hostile territory, heading toward a hornet's nest of enemy anti-aircraft activity, determined to wrench them from the sky. It's hell on earth, because the barrage is so intense. You know you've got to go through that wall. You've got to go through that barrage. You can't turn back. You can't go up or down. You've just got to go on. Take off for 1430 for the Lancaster. The preparations for this operation are as rigorous and thorough as those of 65 years ago. Uh, finishing up with the final run-in along 07. Though these airmen will not clash with a savage enemy in the skies above, they will carry the memory of many thousands who did. Is going to taxi all the way down. The flight it serves as a living and breathing memorial. Initially, it was to the Battle of Britain, to the few, the 3,000 that fought through the Battle of Britain, 800 of whom died in the Battle of Britain, and a further 800 died during the war. With the arrival of the Lancaster in 1973, it then became very much more a focus on the Second World War period. I still get a tingle up my spine uh, in reverence to those people in the Second World War some 56,000 uh, airmen of Bomber Command alone that were lost. I think a lot of it is to show due respect um, and deference to, uh, to, to the air crew um, within the, the Second World War who gave their lives and fought so bravely for our country. Freedom does have a price. The flight stands for, in my mind, everything the RAF exists for. You had a young bunch of guys that went against an enemy they'd never seen before with very little experience, and they fought with total courage and dedication. It is seen now as a living, breathing tribute and memorial to all those who've died in the service of this country in the air since the inception of air warfare to the current day. What we have in the hangar here is two Hurricanes, both of the Mark II Cs, we have five airworthy Spitfires and a sixth on rebuild. The Lancaster, a Dakota, and two Chipmunks. So, so quite a haul, really. Twelve aircraft in total. Twelve aircraft and 25 full-time engineers. Only two engineers per aircraft. That's with five different types and four different engines. That's a hell of a, a, hell of a lot of good value. If you're in the Air Force and you're flying, of course, this is what you would love to do. The Battle of Britain Memorial Flight is just such a, a privileged position to be in, to be flying fighters that have flown in World War II and everything that that stands for. Just flying these things, you know, that, that is the ultimate as far as I'm concerned. This is a voluntary job, which I have to do in my own time, but what a job it is. It is hard work. It's, it's, it's... It is also good fun. It's good fun. It's very rewarding at the end of the day to see the aircraft fly. And 2007 is a special anniversary year for the flight itself. 50th anniversary of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. Formed 11th of July 1957 down at Biggin Hill. Formed with four aircraft. This one you see behind me, LF363, a Mark IIc Hurricane, and three Mark 19 Spitfires. This year, as part of our 50th uh, celebrations down at Biggin Hill, we're going to be flying those original four aircraft together. With the date of the anniversary display at Biggin Hill approaching, the flight's maintenance crews are hard at work. Each machine undergoes extensive servicing to ensure its airworthiness. 
if you look at the hangar during the winter, every single aircraft will be up on jacks, the wheels and the legs taken off, all the cowlings will be stripped off so that all the pipe work and all the wiring can be checked, and they go through a, a quite rigorous series of inspections each year. You can't just remove a component, find that it's, uh, it's no longer worthy of uh, flight, and just go away and get a new part. You've got to use a little bit of initiative and, and uh, fix the one you've got. Spare parts for the aircraft are not unlimited. Uh, there are distinct problems with acquiring certain parts. For the airframe, we've access to full sets of drawings and most components can be remade. For the engine, it's a slightly different story in that the engine relies on original parts, predominantly on original parts. In addition to carrying out meticulous servicing on all 12 machines, one aircraft is scheduled to undergo an important major overhaul. It is the largest aircraft of the flight, the Avro Lancaster four-engine heavy bomber. A Lancaster is one of only two uh, Lancasters flying uh, in, in the world. This particular Lancaster was built in Chester in mid-1945 and it saw service out of the Tiger Force in the Far East. The Lancaster will go into major servicing, which tends to be done outside in industry, simply because we do not have the manpower in here to, to do it ourselves. It's a major operation, involving many hours of complex work, which must be completed on time, while adhering to precise and rigorous safety standards. It's a long period, starting from generally the back end of September, when the aircraft come into the hangar, um, all the panels are removed, and we go into um, a set schedule of routine maintenance, uh, inspections, removing items and components to check for serviceability. Uh, and then we move forward onto repairing those components or repairing parts of the aircraft. The biggest headache of any task like this is especially with an aircraft of this era, this vintage, is where do we get space from? Who can actually carry out some of the maintenance activities that, that are required? For a jet engine, there's a lot more known about them, so you can get advice from the manufacturers if you're really stuck with the problem. Um, or there's usually enough knowledge around to, to glean the information that you need. On these aircrafts, it's a little bit different. Some of the engineering aspects on the Lancaster, it really is back to basics. We're talking nuts, bolts, washers, rivets, old-fashioned rivets. While the huge aircraft is stripped back to its alloy skin, allowing close examination of its airframe, most of its systems and components are removed for detailed inspection. We've got to undo all the bolts, undo all the nuts, take everything out, disconnect wires, disconnect cables, take the component out, and then you've got to put it back in again as well and do the reverse process. And it really is back to good old-fashioned engineering. As work progresses on the Lancaster and other aircraft of the flight, it recalls the urgency of a generation that worked around the clock to produce aircraft that could hit back at the enemy. Wartime priorities meant aircraft had to be produced at speed and in large numbers. Thousands of men and women worked day and night building these vital machines, meeting the demands of war, 
and the need to replace aircraft lost in action. Manufacture and assembly is carried out with that delicate precision for which British workmanship is famous. A total of 14,000 hurricanes were built. In the present state of Europe, it seems that the country couldn't possibly have too many of these fighters. More than 20,000 Spitfires constructed. A welcome sight is to be seen in the Vickers Works at Eastley, one of the factories where the production of Spitfires is rapidly going ahead. Over 7,300 Lancasters were produced. The RAF is depending on them for Lancasters, more Lancasters, and yet more Lancasters. With the date of the display getting nearer, the engineers of the Memorial Flight work with confident optimism. She'll fly in the next two weeks. She'll be airworthy in the next two weeks. As the date of the flight's anniversary display approaches, mechanics work on the aircraft with the same care as their predecessors. For the 50th anniversary year, three aircraft are receiving special attention, which will mean additional work and restoration. While many of the flight's fighter aircraft have seen combat in the Second World War, the Mark IIA Spitfire of the flight, P7350, is the only Spitfire still flying to have actually fought in the Battle of Britain. One of its wings still bears the faint traces of repaired bullet holes, where it was hit by machine gun fire during combat. It will adopt the markings of the aircraft flown by Basil Gerald Stapleton of 603 Squadron, although he was better known by his nickname. My nickname was Stapley. And I received that nickname because I used to post up on our dispersal board, a cartoon of Jane. She was a lady who was always taking her clothes off. And Captain Rillyfile was always chasing her. And his favorite expression was, Stap me, what a filly. And that's how I got the nickname of Stap me. Barely out of his teens in 1940, Stap me Stapleton was soon in action. first seven days we were decimated. I think we lost nine pilots and two or three shot down, but got away with it. But after that, they, um, we learned how to fly in formation, covering each other, rather than flying in a very tight formation where you're covering nobody. And our credo was, keep your height or keep your speed. Then you had the best chance of keeping out of trouble. In the hard reality of aerial combat, even battle-experienced pilots could find themselves in trouble. And that's when I was shot down. And a cannon shell came in between the two center guns on the starboard wing. And I was fortunate there because the guns took the explosion. I had no ailerons, so I couldn't turn left or right. And I saw a stubble field that had been harvested, and I made for that, and I overshot it. And I finished up in a hop field, and I stopped in about 30 yards, and the aircraft didn't even touch the ground. It had been supported by all the canes in the hop field. 
While the Spitfire continues to dominate popular memory of the Battle of Britain, it was the Hawker Hurricane that comprised the bulk of RAF fighter strength throughout the summer of 1940. The Mark IIc Hurricane of the flight, PZ-865, is known as the last of the many for good reason. This is the last Hurricane ever built uh, on the production line. It was delivered in 1944, um, didn't spend any time with the Air Force. There was indeed a tremendous it did spend time in the air races uh, during the 1950s. In wartime, the Hurricane would fill many roles and achieve a large number of kills. Many of those kills would be credited to pilots who had escaped from Nazi-occupied Europe. Flight Lieutenant Carol Kuttelwasser, the Czech night fighter pilot. One such pilot was Flight Lieutenant Carol Kuttelwasser, who had escaped from Czechoslovakia. He would become the RAF's highest scoring night intruder. Flying alone, by night, Kuttelwasser would shoot down enemy bombers over their own bases, earning him the DFC and the nickname Cat's Eyes. What's your favorite type of German plane? Well, I don't mind. I like them all going down. <laughs> the flight's hurricane, famous in its own right as the last hurricane ever built, will fly in the colors and markings of Kuttelwasser's own aircraft. It is a faithful representation, from Night Reaper painted on the nose to the black insert on the port wing, a replacement panel used to repair flak damage incurred when Kuttelwasser shot down three enemy aircraft in a single night. Hitler promised to raise the cities of Britain to the ground. Amidst the harsh surroundings of their bombed-out homes, the mood of the British people was grim but determined. Do you think we ought to bomb Berlin the same as they're doing to us in London? I definitely do, sir. Bomb them tenfold. If I was a man, I'd go over there and I'd give them the same as what they gave us here. I should think so, too. A bit worse than this, I hope, with a wicked bugger like he is. The Allied Air Forces are tasked with the destruction and dislocation of the German military, industrial and economic system to a point where their capacity for armed resistance is fatally weakened. We were stuck in the war. Then we had to try and get enough damage done over there to reduce their capacity for war effort. And the Lancaster fought a war as the main aggressive sign of our, our war effort. We uh, approached it to uh, 100 Squadron and uh, we arrived at, uh, that was at Waltham, RAF Waltham. Uh, we arrived there uh, in June in 1943 with some trepidation and we were surprised to be assigned a brand, a brand new aircraft. After a while, we decided to christen it the Phantom of the Roar, as uh, the, the Battle of the Roar was in full swing at the time. Now, we venerate and respect all the aircrew and the, the servicemen of those days. For this anniversary year, the flight's Lancaster will be repainted as the Phantom of the Roar, commemorating those who didn't return. A new colour scheme is unveiled by Ron Clark, pilot of Phantom of the Roar. Well, every aircraft had a, 
a, a picture of some sort on the front. But every time he flew on an operation, the, the ground crew painted a little yellow bomb on the side, and you had a whole row of these bombs on the side of the aircraft. If you flew to Italy, they painted an ice cream on it instead. After 33 operations with 100 Squadron, Phantom was transferred to 550 Squadron, where it would go on to complete a total of 121 operational flights. In an 18-month period, Phantom of the Ruhr totaled 830 hours of operational flying. As well as the major part it played in the bombing campaign, Lancasters of 617 Squadron were specially adapted to carry Barnes Wallace's bouncing bomb to attack the Mona, Sorp, and Ada dams. And the Lancaster's huge 33-foot-long bomb bay made it the only aircraft capable of carrying the 12,000-pound Tallboy and 22,000-pound Grand Slam bombs, also developed by Barnes-Wallace. Must have been tremendously hard work for them. An awful lot of respect for what those guys did uh, under the pressures uh, they had. It's something that uh, I often think about, and when it's sometimes times are hard here and the job's uh, quite difficult, you think you should maybe just uh, be quiet and get on with the job. Because none of us really expected to finish a tour. Certainly, the Palmaimer is uh, turning a pilot, uh, steady, ready, right, left, steady, hold it. And the pilot is struggling to control the aircraft because the, the, the vibration due to the flak going off. All you concentrate on, I must get it plumbing those marshalling yards. I must get it smack on that factory. This is what you aim for. But you are shouting, and those shouting into your micro microphone, for Christ's sake, drop the bloody thing, let's get out of here. No way. He says, we've brought them all this bloody way, we're going to drop them where it hurts. The Lancaster crews would face this night after night, a grinding battle of attrition in the sky that would last for years. I read a phrase in a book, which I always remember, and it says, to joyride in a Lancaster is sheer pleasure, to operate a Lancaster is sheer terror. I wouldn't ever believe a, an air crew member who would say you didn't have fear. Fear was there all the time, but you had to somehow control that fear. I was 22 at the time, and uh, the, the old man of the crew was the mid-off gunner, and he was 29 which you always thought was rather old, and the rest of us are in our early 20s. Everything went dead quiet in the morning because the padre and the intelligence officer would come and empty a locker, and you'd think, well, hard luck, lads, they're not coming back. But it wouldn't prevent you from even thinking of not doing it again the following day. I mean, you just have to do it, you know. Over half of the aircrew that served in Bomber Command were killed in the course of the long campaign. 
it was the highest loss rate in any of the British armed forces. For this anniversary year, the Lancaster will carry the codes of both squadrons it flew with. Along the port side will be the marking of 100 squadron. Along the starboard side, those of 550 squadron. The pace quickens as the date of the Biggin Hill Air Show approaches. The Rolls-Royce Merlin engines receive their engine tests. Any faults at this stage will threaten eagerly anticipated public appearances. I do remember the VJ Day um, fly past uh, two years ago, and to me, that still represents the most poignant experience I've ever had in the air. We were planned to drop a million poppies from the Lancaster, and it looked to me, as it did to millions of others, as if the aircraft was bleeding. It just looked like a stream of blood coming out of it, and, and that thought, coupled with the, you know, the whole experience of being there, w was quite awe-inspiring. Whenever you speak to anybody, and I was certainly feeling these emotions at the time, people say two things about the memorial flight. It's always tears in the eyes and hairs on the back of the neck. And that moment for me was very much one of those moments. With all tests completed, flight plans are finalised. Now these historic aircraft are ready to take to the skies. And airborne at 9 o'clock. Any questions? Great. Let's hit it. After many months of preparation, the aircraft are ready for the flight to Biggin Hill and the display that will celebrate the 50th anniversary of the memorial flight. These historic machines are a far cry from those their pilots have previously flown. I've done operational tours on the Jaguar in Germany and the Tornado in Germany. I went on to the Qualified Weapons Instructor course Moving out to Germany at the end of uh, 92 for three years as the Qualified Weapons Instructor on 4 Squadron at Larbrook. Uh, we were very, very busy there. We started doing operations in, in Iraq and followed by Bosnia. I flew the Harrier, the, the new version, GR5, GR7, um, for 17 years before uh, being very fortunate being posted here to Coningsby. The air crews of the memorial flight are all volunteers, selected for their expertise and ability. However, regardless of rank or experience, they must undergo extensive retraining. Before you get your hands on these priceless beasts, you know, you've got to prove to yourself and to others that you are capable of uh, being let loose with them. I am the junior pilot. I am the JP again. It is like starting again in some respects. It really takes you back to, to when you first went through pilot training. And they have vices. If you get it wrong, they will bite you, and that's it. Because they're, they're actually quite difficult to handle. Uh, they can be very unforgiving of mistakes. And they do require very, very special handling. You have to learn a lot of your flying skills again, and you have to learn new flying skills. The, the Hurricane, um, I found surprisingly heavy. Now, I'm a Spitfire Virgin. 
and I hope I will never become a Spitfire snob, but I understand that it's not quite as heavy compared to a Typhoon, for instance. With these aircraft, you have to learn to use your feet, you have to learn to use your rudders, and you have to understand the uh, influence that a propeller has on an aircraft as against a jet engine, because they're completely different. Obviously, there's no simulators, there's no two-seaters. It's a matter of learning your checks, pat on the back, and, and off you go. So, uh, trepidation, very daunting, but a, a unique experience. The first time I flew this aircraft, you're talking to a guy with 3,000 fast jet fighter hours under his belt. It was sensory overload. All those hours of experience where you build that, that allows you then to free up mental capacity to focus on what the differences are. Tail wheel, old aircraft, don't crash it. Finally, months of engineering work, years of flying experience, and many hours of practice are about to come together as the aircraft prepare for their separate departures. I think I'll feel uh, a reasonable amount of nervousness and uh, an apprehension as, uh, as soon as I get into that work routine. The, uh, the, those fears, you know, like stage fright, uh, disappear. And, uh, and then you just get down into the, uh, the job in hand and, and make sure you do work you know, professionally and thoroughly. Then we climbed on the aircraft, we all had jobs to do, and our concentration was on that. Well, you all had a job to do, and that was a pretty hectic job, and, and therefore your feelings were more getting on with things than anything else, and it was um, doing whatever the side of your job needed to be done. Start one. Start the one I did now. What we have in, in these aircraft is absolute raw instrumentation. It is back to basics flying. Yeah. But the biggest difference really is in the takeoff and the landing. With a jet, it just goes straight. With these machines, with a huge great fan on the front, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of torque. They date from the 1940s as to when they were built. And, and they use flying techniques and, and procedures that are very much associated with a bygone age. You, you are flying with the spirit of a thousand people sat on your, on your shoulder, making sure that you treat this uh, aircraft with the respect it, it deserves. Sat in the cockpit with the aircraft on the ground, tail down, you can't see forward particularly well, so manoeuvring on the ground is difficult. For the bomber pilot, taking off was a powerful and controlled effort to lift the giant aircraft and its bomb load off the runway and begin the laborious climb away from its base. It's a bit of a devil to take off with a heavy bomb load uh, because it builds up speed slowly and you really got to get the throttles fully open and it's a very heavy aircraft to lift off the ground. And then you let the two outer engines go and the all four go and then the whole lot are released, and that moment is a moment you never forget. Suddenly the engines roar up, the brakes come off, and you surge forward. And as you're opening the throttles, you, the, the flight engineer has got his hand behind them, helping you to push them fully open. And the roar of, of these moments is something you, I just can't explain over here. It's absolutely fantastic, the power and racing along the runway, fighting against the force of gravity, and straining, 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 and you're wondering whether you'll ever get off at the end of the runway with 20,000 pounds of bombs. Because the aircraft wants to weathercock into wind. So as long as you are aware and are ready for the aircraft swing on takeoff, that's not too bad. 
and it starts to bump up gradually, gradually. Is she going to win? Is she not going to win? And then before the end of the runway, where incidentally was our village church, you'd wonder whether you'd get that clear. And just before you'd get it clear, and vroom! And you'd be up like a, a lift going up. And in all that time, you had the consciousness of, of being surrounded by this sound of the Merlin engine. You raise the undercarriage and um, gradually climb away. Once you're in the air, it is fairly, fairly good to fly. It's, it's not hard work at all. A lot of the, uh, the stuff is, is trying to keep one step ahead of the aircraft, uh, you know, uh, looking after the engines, what power settings need, what configuration the aircraft needs to be in, uh, and just uh, trying to anticipate uh, and, and keep ahead of, uh, of the captain's needs as well. My flight engineer hated having to increase the revs to speed up. It mucked up his fuel consumption, and he prided himself on getting 1.1 miles to the gallon out of a lang. <laughs> en route to Biggin Hill, crew members can only imagine what it must have been like to fly these aircraft in hostile skies. The overriding thing is they're probably being fired at, uh, whereas the only thing that's fired at us are flash guns uh, this, this day. Um, when we land, we meet uh, the uh, uh, audience the, uh, of an air show. Uh, if they landed or crash landed, they were going to be shot at. So there is a heck of a difference between uh, flying in wartime and flying in 2007. When we're completing a display and a Spitfire is tipping in to rejoin on the Lancaster, you see it turning in on you and you imagine that being a Messerschmitt or something coming in on you to attack. It's a very foreboding sight to see this, uh, this fighter coming in to engage you, and you're in his sights, and there's, there's virtually nothing you can do. That's when the fear kicks in. The rear turret was a vulnerable point of the aircraft because that's what the enemy aircraft would try and get rid of first. Searchlights could be a problem. And they had what was known as a master searchlight, which was a blue searchlight, which suddenly latched onto you and it's radar controlled and you couldn't dodge it. And then it used to take 15 seconds for the first shells to arrive. And there was a terrific explosion, a great flash of light just beside us. And we immediately went into the corkscrew to get out. I threw the aircraft around all over the place. I, I lost over 10,000 feet in doing it. I got down from 21,000 down to 10, then I got out of it. We were hit various bits of uh, scrap metal on the way down. Proudly carrying the weight of history and the memory of their fellow airmen, the flight leaves for Biggin Hill, an historic frontline fighter station in the Battle of Britain. Crowds have been gathering at Biggin Hill, eager to see the memorial flight as it makes one of 700 individual appearances during this season alone. As the sound of the Merlin engines are heard over Biggin Hill once again, 
the people on the ground looked to the sky, welcoming the aircraft home where the flight started 50 years ago. The landing is just a question of getting, getting the aircraft exactly on the center line, on the correct glide path, on the right speed, and coming over the threshold at about just under 90 knots with minus six power set with a nice rate of descent and just getting the wheels two or three feet above the runway and a nice gentle cut on the throttles. If you achieve all that, you have a nice gentle touchdown. If you get it wrong with these balloon tires, you can easily bounce it and when you're flying in front of 20,000 people, it can be quite embarrassing. The four Merlins together, they, I mean, they sound like an orchestra. They, the sound is like nothing else. So the sight and the sound combined is a very powerful experience and, and one that appeals to all generations. Why? Because it's so evocative. It is so linked to an, a, an era, a period in history. We just come today because we follow the memorial flight wherever it goes. We came specifically for this because of the memorial flight. Um, it's something that we shouldn't, shouldn't forget. They should keep it flying for as long as possible uh, in order that people can remember what uh, this country did for all those that are around today. It's, it's flying history, you just can't miss out on a day like this. You know. More history is passed down to and more children, young children can see um, all about this and can be reminded of, of history and taught about it, what happened in the war, then I think it's brilliant. Particularly with the, the Spitfire and the Hurricane, which were two iconic symbols of the Battle of Britain, and the Lancaster as well. I think it's very important that we still keep it flying. Without the sacrifice of all the sort of pilots and bombers and so on and so forth during the last war, um, we wouldn't all be here stand doing this. It's good to come back and uh, remember the, uh, those that fought for our freedom. The public here today are paying tribute to the wartime RAF not only for defeating the enemy that threatened their freedom, but also for their contribution to the development of modern military operations. But not all wartime operations were aggressive. Some were to save lives in occupied Europe. A couple of months before the war finished, and there we were faced with something totally different from our normal job. That period of the war, the Dutch, particularly in the western part of Holland, were starving. You had kids actually were dying, and so the Dutch and the Germans agreed with the English that the English would drop food, and the only things with the size and the ability to drop anything were Lancasters. Permission was granted, provided the planes flew out over the North Sea at 50 feet. And it was so close to the channel, we could almost feel the splashes coming up. The board member, picked up the actual dropping site, which was part, and then he, he, we just released the stuff, like, instead of releasing bombs, there was food. I shall never forget the site in my life. They had got up to every roof, every top, every veranda, they climbed up, and they had got uh, pillar slips and white blankets and so on, and they had spelled out on the rooftop, God bless you. There were tears in their eyes, I can tell you that. Hello, young man, how are you? Have a nice time? 
Look, the public response is over, overwhelmingly in support of what we do. They love the aircraft. I very much support the, the interest they take, and I, I love it when they, they come up and people ask us to sign brochures, which is all part and parcel of doing it. It's a great honour and privilege to do it. It's nice meeting the public, and generally they've got uh, good things to say about us. They enjoy seeing the aeroplanes, um, but uh, it is quite embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> I've met some wonderful people. Uh, shown them in the Lancaster for the first time they've been back in since the 1940s. Uh, one particular guy um, had an artificial leg, and I said, well, if you can get in, please do so. And he was like a rat up a drainpipe, back to the, to the bottom of his position. Uh, he spent several emotional minutes in the front there, and then when he'd finished, he said, uh, I'll just close my eyes and see if I can make my way out. He made his way out unarmed. The flight's ground crews often have to work irregular and prolonged hours during the season supporting the displays, a contribution that is acknowledged also by the airmen of the past. We couldn't take off without them. We couldn't fly without them. We couldn't bomb without them. We couldn't get back without them. We got the uh, kudos. We got the... Uh, Fights, but they, they were the boys who were 100% necessary. Once again, pilots and crew board their machines to prepare for their anniversary display. For squadron leader Stupney Stapleton, there is a very special reunion. One Spitfire of the flight carries the markings of the aircraft he flew in the Battle of Britain. I, th I think it's a good thing to keep it alive. It's a good thing to keep it alive. I'm patting myself on the back because the one I, uh, I uh, crash-landed was repairable. As the pilots of the memorial flight embark on their display, they are fulfilling the purpose of the flight and its motto, lest we forget. The motto of the flight is lest we forget, and very apt it is too, because the, the, the whole basis of keeping the memorial flight alive is to keep the memory of those crews who, who valiantly gave their lives in the, in the Second World War alive as well. As we estimate uh, in a season, uh, around about six million people will see the aircraft performing at various flight paths and displays around the country. When we're up there flying, we hope we inspire the nation. We hope we inspire the youth. Inspire them to take an interest and understand what was sacrificed in their name. Sacrifice, duty and service were the watchwords for an entire generation, whether they be in factories or flying. Each person on the flight uh, shares a, a, a passion for the, for the airplanes, a passion for the flight, a passion for showing the airplanes out. Uh, we're all immensely proud of being able to do this. If, if you'd ever told me many years ago that I would be in the position I am now, where I not only fly but, but teach people to fly the Lancaster as being the RAF's only qualified flying instructor on the type, what a position to be in and what a privilege and honour it is to do it. It's, uh, it's unbelievable, really. Although I hadn't told the RAF at the time, 
my ambition all the, all the while was to fly the, the Lancaster bomber, as that had inspired me to join the RAF in the first place. The frontline air crews of the RAF are no different at all from the frontline air crews that they were you know, during the war. That people just doing their job to the best of their ability. I think I'm uh, exceedingly lucky, exceedingly privileged to, uh, to have the, uh, the opportunity and the honour of, uh, of doing something like this. I'm a firm believer in keeping the memory alive. I do believe of what the memorial flight is all about. More than 60 years have passed since the fighter pilots of the Battle of Britain stood down at the end of the day. and the crews of Bomber Command would begin their long and dangerous missions over enemy territory. The memorial flight will ensure their memory is kept alive. They stir the soul when they're in the air, and, and I think it's very important that people can relate to the Second World War and, and the outcome, and, and specifically the, 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 the the lives of the aircrew who, who fought in the Second World War so that we can live the life that we live today. It's one of the few remaining parts, you know, of our history, isn't it? I think we should hang on to the bits that we have. They represent uh, an expression of a period which couldn't have been more important in our history. Remember the aircraft, you remember people who were in them. Battle of Britain Memorial Flight shouldn't be there forevermore. We will keep these aircraft flying, we will look after them, we will service them, and we'll keep them flying indefinitely. 50 years on, they're still going strong. They can do this for another 50 years. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.